I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm here today in the offices of Blackbird Ventures uh, and with its founder, Nikki Skivak, uh, who is not only a successful entrepreneur, a fellow Australian, but also runs Australia's largest VC fund. Nikki, it's great to see you. Great to be here. <laughs> and of course, we worked together many years ago at, at Jupiter Research. Yes, indeed. Good old days. It's just amazing when, we, when, you, when you see how much the market's changed and the whole industry, actually. Uh, so how... What's been your journey in the last 10 years? How did you end up setting up Blackbird? Yeah, it was uh, a journey from from working with yourself uh, and telling companies what to do and then became uh, sick of that and wanted to try and do something myself. So founded uh, two uh, software companies uh, with moderate success. Uh, And then about seven years ago, wanted to start angel investing in my own money around particularly uh, this trend of global from day one businesses. So I'd moved back to Australia seven years ago, uh, began doing that, uh, began formalizing it with Startmate, which is an accelerator and is sort of a, a precursor or a uh, MVP of Blackbird. Uh, and the, the two core values of both Startmate and Blackbird are founders helping other founders. So people have built businesses helping out the next generation. Right. Um, and those uh, people helping the next generation waste less time. I don't think people can give anyone else a silver bullet, but they can certainly tell them how to waste less time on things that don't matter. Uh, and also this idea of connecting Australians into Silicon Valley. So Silicon Valley is the central station for startups and uh, uh, will always be uh, the central station in, in my mind. And so how do we help uh, build a bridge from Australia to Silicon Valley. I guess in, in in the past, when people thought about Australian venture capital, it was very much about finding Australian companies for the Australian market. Uh, but one of the things that really interests me about Blackbird is that it's kind of market agnostic. Um, you're actually looking for companies uh, that are, are global. Yes, so I, I would say uh, entrepreneurship outside of Silicon Valley tends to fall in two categories. Uh, one is this global from day one business, this kind of company that's trying to be the best in the world. Um, but I would say the other half is take a good idea that's worked in the US and make it work in whatever country, like make Uber work in Australia <laughs> or Groupon work in South Korea or uh, right. so on and so and forth. And then try to sell it back to the mothership. Exactly, yes. Uh, and I think uh, that's still a valid way that a lot of people have uh, made money, but was definitely not our kind of personality. So specifically, we don't do any of that. Uh, right. And even uh, that kind of market, I think, has been... Uh, quite dramatically changed where uh, the Uber tends to launch very quickly. So even seed round Uber was launching in uh, Sydney. Uh, And then also obviously rocket internet formalizing where any good idea that happens in the US, they will send French and German investment bankers (laughs) to any country in the world to make sure they've launched a version a week later. They actually took the Chinese idea of copying technology to a whole new level. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) It's, it's a, fascinating uh you know company in in its uh uh in itself uh but you know if you're a local entrepreneur trying to you know watch what is a good idea make it work you you the competition is much fiercer than it was 10 years ago where you could uh, conceivably build something for three years untouched before the other 
companies bothered to pay attention to Australia or whatever country. Um, but uh, you know, we specifically set up Blackbird to only invest in these kinds of companies that wanted to build long-term durable companies that were aiming to be the best in the world. And so uh, what was uh, interesting to, to me was Australia had produced all of these great startups Atlassian, Campaign Monitor, Envato, Halfbrick Studios, um, and the list goes on. There's probably 15 to 20 of these wonderful companies that were the best in the world in, in, in what, uh, what they chose to do. Um, and particularly around, uh, say, enterprise software, where the sales process had changed so dramatically, where you had to set up an expensive office and hire expensive business development people. To go out for expensive lunch. Expensive <laughs> lunches and play expensive golf and, uh, you know, have a conversation over 12 months. And it was a very big sort of, you know, pot at the end of the rainbow of, you know, big dollar, important people, um, decisions made badly because of that process. Um, versus where the product was a salesperson. So the actual person in the organization had to use the product, the worker, the HR manager, the marketing manager, the developer, whatever it might be, um, could use the product free for 30 days and then choose to pay a small amount of money on their credit card. Right. Um, but you know, if that happened hundreds of times or thousands of times, you ended up at the same end result of X hundred thousand dollars per year, but it was hundreds or thousands of decentralized decisions versus one big centralized you're, you're selling to the user rather than the CIO or CMO. Yes, absolutely, yes. Uh, yeah. And you know, the, the other strange thing I think with enterprise software is uh, as the organizations got bigger, the procurement processes got bigger, and you know, quite frankly, more corrupt, it was like you know, the CIOs of government organizations who would make decisions to spend $6 billion on a payroll system with Accenture or IBM, and, they're having all their holidays with Accenture and IBM and a couple of years later are a special advisor after they've left the <laughs> division and getting paid millions of dollars. So it's sort of this African dictatorship model of uh, <laughs> buying enterprise software, which I thought uh, was you know, deeply troubled. It's still the majority of enterprise software is still bought in that particular way. Um, but there's certainly a new strand of companies in Australia uh, contributing to uh, many of them uh, of sell to the worker in this decentralized way. Um, and it's very similar to Uber where Uber launches in a market. It's completely illegal for it to do so. Um, consumers love the product and begin using the product and then the law gets changed. Well, they press they they the regulators. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I know in Miami, they, they, they give you a $1,000 fine if they, they give the drivers a $1,000 fine if they catch you dropping off the airport. Yep. But Uber just pays for it. Yeah, and then the law does get changed. I think there's enough examples where uh, if all of the people who uh, elect the government love it, uh, the yeah. law will get changed. I think. It was almost this model for enterprise software where all of the workers would use it on their credit cards illegally from the IT decision buying process. But once enough of them used it, uh, the central IT department had no choice but to take responsibility for managing it um, and making it legal. Right. So shadow IT becomes dominant IT. Yeah, that's you know that's that was the process, and I think you know it also led to better enterprise software products being created. It wasn't um, you know how charming a salesperson was it was how good the product was and how 
uh, well the product solve the problem of the users? But, but do you think uh, when, they, when these companies reach a certain scale, to some extent they revert to traditional models? Uh, like I know Salesforce used to be very lean and agile like this, uh, but now they've almost employed a boiler room of salespeople uh, yeah, who take I, a very aggressive approach to, to signing and re-signing contracts. And to be clear, like I think you know, uh, most of enterprise software companies will be built in this old school way like oracle is still a company that gushes cash and yeah. uh, sells in in a very particular kind of way i think uh for the new types of companies they start off in this very low friction sales process way um they do add people eventually atlassian is unique in that it's you know half a billion dollars of sales and no sales people but what tends to happen is uh you'll add the expensive people to the end of the process, not the start of the process. So once the company has used uh, the product to a certain level, they're paying some low amount of money, they'll send in an experienced salesperson to identify that, uh, upsell the account to the full organization, figure out things that they can charge more for, and so on. So the expensive person comes in at the end, not the beginning, whereas right. um, you know, 10 years ago, it was the stake dinners and golf <laughs> days uh, at the beginning of the process. You know, when we, we first were involved in the internet, like in the, sort of the late 90s, early 2000s, it was a completely different business model. It was all hype. It was all about building an audience using traditional media and then selling advertising. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, there's been almost a, a complete state change now uh, in the way we design companies, in the way you invest in companies, right? You're actually looking for people who have a business model from the beginning. Yes and no. I think, you know, look, it, it, I think the internet over-promised uh, in 1999 on the timeline it could deliver. I don't think it over-promised in what it, what it actually delivered. So I think 15 years later, Apple is the world's largest publicly listed company by a wide margin. There was an interesting stat where if you added up all the cash on every publicly listed business's balance sheet, Apple has 10% of the world's corporate cash, which wow. is a stunning statistic. Yeah. Um, Google is the second largest company in the world. Facebook's in the top 10, Microsoft's in the top five. So I think people underestimate that all of these businesses delivered upon the promise, but 15 years later, not one year later. Um, and you know, Google is one of the most amazing companies in the world. It gushes cash, its valuation is not, it's conservative compared to other, you know, uh, blue chip and in inverted commas uh, <laughs> companies. So, uh, and it's a, and it, it's a completely advertising based uh, business model. So I think even ads are fine. It's just how well you do them in, in, in the right scenario. Um, in terms of business model, I think, uh, you know, things have changed uh, the way things like enterprise software can be solved. I don't think the business models have, have changed uh, too much, but I just think people have realized what wonderful businesses software companies are. Yeah, uh, one of the companies you've backed, uh, I think it's fascinating, it's uh, Canva.com, mm. uh, because it's something that just couldn't have existed five years ago. Yeah, yeah, uh, I think. Can, uh, can you talk a little bit about their story? So. Yeah, it was founded uh, by uh, three co-founders, Mel, Cliff, and, and Cameron. Uh, interestingly, uh, I think when, when you're investing, also people tend to think, uh, what are the hot areas that you want to invest in and that's to me the wrong way to think about it. If you think about Canva, it was uh, probably the only graphic design startup of the past five years. I think Picnic was yeah. one that was a, a small acquisition by Google six years ago and no one had really tried anything 
since. So it's not like it fit a predetermined, you know, food delivery startup or some on-demand marketplace. It was. It, it certainly wasn't the Uber of graphic design. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it's, uh, you know, those are usually the best stories because the founders have come to the problem in a very more organic way. It's not, you know, China's a large market, and if I can get one percent of it, I'll be rich. It's, yeah. You know, the, the the story of the company is actually uh, the founders had created a previous business, Fusion Books, that did high school yearbooks. Uh, really? And uh, through that, uh, you know, had built a, a, a wonderful small business that had a large market share in Australia. Students would log on and teachers would log on and parents would pay for the, the yearbook to be printed. Was that, it was like kind of an analog Facebook. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> uh, and uh, the usage there led them to uh, this larger problem that Canva is trying to solve, which is how do you democratize uh, graphic design? How do you let everyone not wait back from the designer? I think in companies, if uh, people want to do things, marketing managers, salespeople, anyone with an organization wants to do anything, they usually have to interface with a designer who you know, pays money to go to university to learn it and then pays thousands more dollars for Adobe Photoshop. And I think Canva is empowering uh, these types of marketing uh, and salespeople to do things and communicate with great design. It's uh, bringing the, it's, it's letting those sorts of people access the great principles of, of design. Um, so the way the founders came to the, to the problem, that's something that we really, really look for. I think. Um, Chris Dixon uh, has this great uh, blog post called The Idea Maze, like what are the sets of events that led the person to um, the ultimate endpoint of starting that company. Um, and Canva is a great example where Mel was a, a teaching graphic design at university that created Fusion Books and that, that those steps have led to the creation uh, of Canva. Uh, Canva's been live now for about uh, two years, I think. 7 million users growing at a million users a month. Um, so a wonderful uh, product that people are deeply, deeply engaged in. Um, and then hopefully in the next decade or two, uh, you know, building the next great business. I, it's a seductive idea that there is an idea maze. Uh, I, I often wonder how much of it is sort of retrospectively imagined as a founder yep. story. Yep. <laughs> uh, and how much of it really is sort of a, shows a genuine connection with the customer's problem. I think, yeah, I mean, you know, I do believe that things are retrospectively polished uh, for, for a neat story, um, but I would say uh, in general, it's all the great ones go through that. That uh, process. That process, yeah. And, and what is that process? Is it, is it really like a, is it a, in essence, is it a personal connection with a problem? Absolutely. I think it's, you know, the, the test of why does that person give a shit about that problem? Um, <laughs> because when you start a company, uh, usually things never go right and you have to have that kind of fuel or the uh the petrol to get through the initial few years when it isn't working like why are you going to not give up at the first sign of trouble and it's often you know that that passion uh to the uh problem of the customer that empathy with what they do every day yeah um, but I also think like all products are an editing experience and so uh, when you have that deep connection to the problem, you know what to leave out, you know what is important, you know um, the the problem to be solved. Uh, and so I think that's important in, in crafting the product and what it is and what it is not. Um, you know, if you have that connection to the problem, that's, that's what helps. One of the things I've been, I've been thinking about lately is uh, all these companies are designed to scale. 
but it also means that the problems of scale arrive a lot earlier uh, mm-hmm. for these companies than they did in the past. I mean, suddenly if you're a, a billion dollar company overnight, you suddenly have to hire a lot more people potentially mm-hmm. and get offices and deal with all these issues. Do you think there's an emerging template for what a big company should now look like if you can start from scratch? Yeah, but I, I think, you know... And is it different to, you know, you know the, tr- the traditional big company? Yeah, well, I think you're much in like in the investing world where as soon as there is a category, it's probably too late to invest. Um, where as soon as there is a template, it's probably not working anymore. Um, so I think uh, there's all different ways to build a company. But what's fascinating to me is that, uh, you know, Instagram sold to Facebook with 13 employees. Craigslist, you know, prints hundreds of millions of dollars a year with however many staff they have, I think it's like sub 100. Uh, WhatsApp sold to Facebook, uh, again, 50 engineers. I so think do you think you can so. stay small? Yeah, I think the, the leverage of technology um, is so great now that I, I would almost bet that all of those Instagram, WhatsApp, Craigslist stories will become a greater amount of the uh, the companies. I, you know, that is a prediction for mass unemployment, though. Yeah. Because yeah. if these companies are successful, dominate their categories of thirty people, then what are the rest of us going to do? Yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah. Uh, the definitely big, big impacts on uh, lots of different things. I think in general, um, it's true that it's cheaper to start a startup. It still costs the same amount to build a really, really big company, um, and. Uh, there is templates for different stages and patterns for different stages, but I think um, it's just can the team hang on? Can the team, you know, hang on to the rocket as it's taking off and yeah. uh, make it up, make it up, and uh, as they go, and even just not getting ahead of themselves. It's almost like a video game. You just solve each different level and you throw out what you had before and you use well, some new thing. Even Google had to go through that process of bringing in adult supervision. And yeah, uh, I just wonder, you know, there's all these kind of uh, detritus of, of companies like HR departments and offices and cubicles. I mean, how much of that do we want to keep in the 21st century? Mm. And if we really have the chance to not only design a product, but design a company, which bits do we use? Yeah, and I think, you know, or when you start a company that becomes a big company, you get to make all of these decisions with a fresh mind. You get to, you know, test everything from first principles versus when you're given a company that's so large and how do you rewrite that? Yeah. Um, is a lot harder than how do you build something, you know, going from nothing to, to a huge thing. So I think, uh, you know, lots of these companies are rethinking what is needed, what is the most important parts and, uh, you know, what things don't we need. Uh, you raise a good point because traditional companies are almost seduced by this idea that they can behave like startups. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, they, they kind of, you know, they, they read the startup books and uh, yep. they, they imagine, you know, creating a minimal viable product. Yeah, buy a few iPads and run a hackathon. That's right, get some beanbags. Yeah. What can they, I mean, given the experiences you've had with great startup culture and, and environments in which are creative and productive and innovative. What do you think big companies can emulate when they try to change their culture or restructure the way they work? I don't know if they can, and I don't know if it's uh, a difference of the time that we're in or the time that we've always been in, where I think it is just a completely different set of incentives and human behavior where uh, something is about success maximization or failure minimization. I think large companies are failure minimization organizations where uh, everything is set up to not fail in what they do. Both at a corporate and an individual level, right? Yeah, whereas startups uh, are these unique things where the company has nothing to lose. So it has everything to win. 
Um, and it's success maximization. It's, you know, when you aim big and succeed, you succeed hugely. And I think corporate environments just are not set up for that. Um, mm. I also think just at some base level of human nature and even observing startups in the beginning and as they get uh, bigger is um, once you have something to lose, you do protect that. Um, it's just a fundamental, I don't know, writing of our human genes where if you have something to lose, you'll be defensive in some way. Yeah. Whereas uh, when you're beginning a startup, it's completely you know on the offense. Uh, so. I don't know if they can replicate it. I think also uh, this illusion of control um, and uh, this fantasy of thinking that you can forecast the future. I think, you know, just because you have five decimal places in a forecast model doesn't mean you're right. Um, and also uh, that everything has to be controlled. I think that slows things down. Yeah. Uh, so I think, you know, if corporates really do want to do things uh, that are interesting, you know, to me, uh, the most uh, interesting companies in the world are Alibaba, Tencent, and Google. They've, where, even if you look at Google's investment in Uber, they've set up Google Ventures where the managers are going to earn more probably than Larry and Sergey uh, uh, in any given year if they realize the Uber investment at the valuation Uber is. Uh, but you know, Google as a whole owns seven or eight percent of uber which could be worth seven or eight billion that's seven or eight billion dollars of uh value creation google is a large i think it's four or five hundred billion dollar organization but um it was happy to be uh you know a small seven or eight percent shareholder uh it was happy to uh again pay managers who made that decision potentially hundreds of millions or billions of dollars uh in carry uh and so, so it's just messy in terms so their of own like employees were able to get participation the people who manage google ventures yes oh, um, wow. so they have a 20 percent carry or it's rumored to be 20 percent carry um so once they realize that investment those people will earn you know likely hundreds of millions of dollars um google itself is competing against uber uh, they're creating their own self-driving car team to mm. compete against uber so i think like the illusions or the the fantasies of, of large corporates is that they have to control everything that the future is somehow neatly forecastable um, and then also that it is a neat process it's not it's like a very yeah. messy uh it's like even with the self-driving cars like if if the majority of the world's roads have self-driving cars and not human driving cars then the car insurance industry disappears like there's just such a uh, and, and, and we were talking a bit about this and, and you, two of the companies you mentioned of course uh, Tencent and Alibaba are Chinese mm. I mean the Chinese are thinking about this on a whole other scale uh, yeah. well, tell me about the city in Shenzhen you, you were saying uh, it's just fascinating uh, so self-driving cars uh, and you know where will they be adopted first and it's very interesting because it's not a national level conversation it's, it's a city by city the, the mayor with the most uh, sort of Hutzpah and Forethought will uh, say that driverless cars are legal in his or her city. Uh, and China, uh, obviously one, like why has China grown in the past decade? And it's just that they've spent gazillions of dollars building new infrastructure. They're still building uh, numbers of, of completely new cities. So you think about, again, how do driverless cars work in developed cities? But you know China has the opportunity uh, like no other country in the world where they're building new cities right today and they're designing mm. from the ground up how driverless cars can be the primary transport mechanism. Uh, another interesting sort of stat was 
Foxconn, which makes Apple's iPhones, has a, a corporate campus where hundreds of thousands of people work. They have their own hospital system. They have their own uh, education education system. And so they, uh, you know, even from the transport uh, decision, um, it's non-governmental. It's almost like these companies are governments uh, and making decisions uh, where you have a CEO uh, making a big decision um, to affect the hundreds of thousands of people, uh, their lives and how they get around each day. Well, I was just wondering, what would a city built for driverless cars look, how would it look different to a normal city? I mean, one thing that occurs to me is that you would treat parking stations completely differently. Yeah, a fascinating thing, uh, another stat that I heard uh, was that in Los Angeles, 40% of the land um, is taken up in some way by parking. I think, so, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to say burger joints. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> really but if you think about it, like, you know, on a road, uh, you know, two lanes will be cars driving and the two outer lanes might be cars parking. You have parking stations, you have people's garages, you have driveways in, in their houses. Uh, it's just a, a staggering amount of land in a city is taken up by parking. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, in a city that doesn't require parking, you can have 40% uh, more land, which is quite staggering. What could you do with that that space? Um, yeah, and, and it's interesting because vast parts of America, not just Los Angeles, but also Texas, were designed for the automobile, mm. at a scale for the automobile. I mean, they these lots were so big that, you know, they're not human scale. Uh, they were designed to be appreciated 60 miles per hour. Yep, absolutely. And uh, even just fuel, if you think about oil uh, and why hasn't... Uh, electric cars or hydrogen in particular taken off when it's much more friendly to the environment than, than oil and uh, you know with the electric uh, car story of Better Place which tried to build yeah, know, yeah. This, uh, petrol stations of the electronic uh, vehicle world uh, and spent billions of dollars and but, I saw some know, of them in Jerusalem uh, yeah why, why do you need uh, uh, why do you need the petrol stations of tomorrow where if no one owns a car if you have a network of cars driving around that is going back to base you don't need to build this huge energy infrastructure you can have all of the hydrogen uh, all the uh, electric vehicle infrastructure in just one place you have to build one thing because the cars come back to you um, at the end of their night or the end of their shift uh, and you're right this is not about technology a lot of it's got to do with politics and culture mm. uh, i was blown away that i, I learned recently that some of the first taxis in new york in in the early 1900s were actually electric Mm, wow. They had electric taxi cabs in like 1904. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's it, you know running off batteries. Uh, I think what happened though, there was a big fire, mysterious fire in the depot. Yeah. <laughs> it wiped out the whole fleet, and they yeah. just never kind of reinvested in that technology. Yeah, yeah. It's so I think uh, it's one thing leads to so many other things uh, that you don't realize. You know, the car insurance industry not needing to exist because the there are no crashing cars. Uh, energy infrastructure not needing to build, be built because it's one centralized thing having 40 percent more land then what do you do with the 40 percent that will enable all these new things to happen uh, i think it's just completely fascinating part of being a good vc is having a vision for how the future is going to play out uh not necessarily being able to predict it you know to five decimal places but yeah. you, you must have a, a sense of the aesthetic of how it's going to play out so what is futuristic to you like what excites you about the future i think uh it is uh, it is picking what the future I think it's having an opinion on how you build a high quality business where and not having an opinion on what kind of like what category of business that will be because I think um, so being category agnostic 
to some extent. You have to be open to who walks through the door and the problems that the entrepreneurs want to solve. So it's not you know, king making in terms of, I believe that certain things and I will assemble a team and I will control the process. <laughs> it's supporting the lives of founders who have this deep uh, uh, sort of passion for a, for a particular problem. Um, you definitely have opinions on, you know, what are crappy businesses and, you know, how will a, a business build a moat around its, uh, why will this uh, business have a network effect of some kind uh, in the future? What are the unit economics? What are the, can it be a high quality business? So I think, you know, the, the sort of Warren Buffett style thinking of how can this business be a really, really high quality business, not a low quality business. Um, but I wouldn't have said all of the things uh, about driverless cars even a year ago. Uh, and so um, these things uh, and the people that you meet, you react to them. And, uh, you know, again, you act on extremely incomplete information. You just don't know uh, most of everything. Um, you know, the irony is that there's no due diligence that you can do uh, on a seed stage startup. It's, you know, uh, a recently formed company and founders who own equity and have hmm. signed the IP to the company. That's the only due diligence that you can actually do. I think you can have opinions on uh, what is a high quality business or a low quality business, what is interesting from uh, a technology domain to explore like driverless cars. I fully believe that is a, uh, probably the number one interesting domain at the moment. Like if you think, you know, what has happened in the past five years, uh, of all the startups that have ever been started in the last five years, and they're all worth some X amount of money. Um, I would, uh, if you look back and you do the analysis of all the startups in every single category, uh, you added them up, and I would say the majority of value have been has been created by Uber, Didi, Kudai, and Ola, and Lyft. Um, so if you look at the past five years, what's worked in startups, and it has been transportation ride sharing, and driverless cars literally are that, but uh, you know, three times better unit economics. Like you think Uber, you pay a dollar for a ride in Uber and uh, 80, 80 cents uh, goes to the driver, 20 cents goes to Uber. Of the 80 cents that goes to the driver, maybe you know, another 15 cents goes to the running of the car. And so the driver is two thirds of the cost of yeah. uh, that dollar. Which is why Uber hired all those roboticists out of Carnegie Mellon. Yes, absolutely. It's why Apple has hired uh, similar. It's, it's not. Why... It's not a long-term career prospect being no, an Uber driver. No, I don't think so. <laughs> it's definitely in the in the career Deadpool. Yeah, and you know, then if uh, you have three times better unit economics uh, because there's no driver in the car, you can either make the cars really really cheap. You can create new experiences. Um, if you make the uh, cars really really cheap then people don't need to own their car they can uh, subscribe to a car whenever they need it uh, and so I think that has the potential to be a huge huge market um, simply because of all of the value that's been created with you know a business model that likely will go away uh, very quickly. Nikki it's been uh, it's been great seeing you and, and great catching up thanks for being on the show. Thanks Jess. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.